I am so thankful that we serve a God who knows what's going on and sees the big picture. When we planned this message series of why are you hiding, and then we thought, you know, sometimes those things, the guilt and the shame starts to manifest itself as depression and anxiety, and we need to talk about a couple of those things. We had no clue that we would be in the midst of the biggest pandemic that our generation has ever seen. We had no idea that the whole world would be shut down. I mean, if you're not experiencing anxiety right now with everything that's going on, if you, have, if you don't have any level of fear, well, I guess you're just bulletproof. It's just amazing what's happening, and it's amazing that I get to talk about these topics uh, in the midst of all these things. And so we're going to talk about this today. And as we're talking about it, I decided I wanted to start with my story and my struggle with uh, anxiety that I've had a, a while ago. And uh, I was worried about telling this story, to be honest. I was, I was nervous about telling it because telling this story, I haven't told it to very many people. My closest friends know this about me, but I haven't told it to very many people because it just requires me to get really vulnerable. And I'm nervous that as you hear this story, you're going to say, that's ridiculous. And, and you're going to think I'm stupid, to be honest. That's my fear. But I realize I have no business sitting here. I have no business coming into your living room and preaching a message about why are you hiding if I'm not willing to come out of hiding a little bit and show what I've been through. So here we go. I'm going to tell the story, take it for what it's worth, and then we'll dive into the topic of depression and anxiety. A few years after we got married, some interesting things started to happen to me. And I use those words, happen to me, on purpose because it wasn't like I woke up one day and thought, well, you know what, I just, I just want to be miserable today. It wasn't like I woke up one day and thought, this is, this is just who I'm going to be now. It just started happening. And I didn't know why, and I didn't understand it. And it just, and it just boggled my mind. The first thing that I noticed was I started getting this, this lump in my throat. And it just felt like someone kind of had their fingers or their hand like right here on my windpipe or around my Adam's apple. And it just, and it just felt like tight there all the time. And ironically enough, this happened at the exact same time as one of Johanna's close friends was going through thyroid cancer. And so I'm totally freaked out. And I'm thinking, I have thyroid cancer and I'm constantly like feeling my throat. And I'm thinking clicks when I swallow. I wonder what's going on. And it took me a while to figure out that, man, that lump in my throat seems to show up at the same time as my brain starts doing these, like having these crazy thoughts that I can't control. And so I'll just give you an example of what one of those thoughts was. Uh, when we were dating, when Johanna and I were dating, you know, my wife is an amazing person. She had never dated anybody before me. She had never even kissed anybody besides me. And when we were dating, one time we were at her mom's house and she was showing me some old pictures from high school and she showed me a picture of when she went to prom. And she looked amazing, you know, she's wearing this beautiful dress and she's got her hair all done and she looks gorgeous. And there's this jerk standing next to her. <laughs> he wasn't a jerk, but he wasn't me, you know? And I'm sitting there, I'm going, well, what's up with this guy? And she immediately just reassured me. She goes, oh no, he was just a friend of mine. You know, we went in a big group. There was... There's a whole ton of people and we had a blast and it was just a group of friends hanging out that there was nothing. I wasn't interested in him at all. Like there was nothing to this. And so I thought, oh, okay. And we just moved on our way. Well, fast forward a few months and we've been married now for a little while. 
And uh, all of a sudden, like jealousy over this guy comes in. And this is where I'm like, I don't want to tell this story because it's stupid. And I know it's stupid. But jealousy over this guy, and I picture him, you know, like sitting next to her and getting into the car with her and dancing with her and all this stuff. And here, you know, the rational part of my brain is saying, well, Jonathan, you've danced with other people and it never meant anything to you. You know, you've hung out with friends before and it was never a big deal. Why are you worried about this? But it felt like my brain was divided. And one half was rational. One half made sense. One half I could control. The other half was doing its own thing over here. And it was all jealous and it was nervous and I couldn't, I couldn't get it back into control. And it felt like it absorbed a huge amount of my processing power as a person. I'd be sitting there at work, you know, just minding my own business, doing my own thing, trying to write computer software, whatever. And all of a sudden, boom, here it comes and here comes the lump in my throat and I'm just, and I'm just wound up and I'm just, and it just drove me crazy. Another thing that would often happen is, you know, that passage of scripture where Jesus says, um, he who looks at a, another woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. I'm paraphrasing, but well, anytime someone remotely attractive would walk by, it would send me into this just total complex where I'm sitting here and I'm going, did I lust? I don't think so. I don't think I took another look. What, did, what happened? I don't know. And I'd just get so nervous and wound up about it. And I'd think that I'd sinned and I would, I'd feel so guilty. And I felt like I'd betrayed my marriage vows. And it was just a miserable, it was, it was probably a year and a half or two years where it was just miserable. No, that's just a couple of examples of where just part of my brain would just spin off and start doing its own thing. And the only thing that would make me feel better was to confess these things to my wife and to talk to her about it. And so I would do this on a regular basis. And you know, again, she's an amazing person. At first she was just so kind to me and okay, Jonathan, you know, I love you and it's okay. And I forgive you. And there was nothing with that guy and this and that. And she was so understanding and just listened and cared and all this, but and it would help me feel better for the rest of the day or maybe the weekend. And then a couple days later, here it comes back again. Here comes the anxiety. Here comes my brain just not doing its thing. And I didn't even have words like anxiety for it. I had no idea what it was that I was doing. All I knew is my brain would rebel. And I tried quoting scripture to myself over and over and over again. I tried telling myself this was stupid. I tried telling myself I just needed to stop thinking about it. I tried all of these things that I could figure out to no avail. Even went to a counselor once to see if he could help me. And some of his stuff made sense and, and helped a little bit, but it, it didn't really, didn't get me to where I wanted to be. Well, I don't even remember how I stumbled across this one book. But, oh, I remember, I got an Amazon Kindle for Christmas. One of those e-readers, you know. And I was going through the store and I think I just looked up some something on mental health. I don't know. I was just struggling and trying to find something. And I found this little book and I think I paid $3 for it on Amazon. <laughs> it was the best $3 I have ever spent in my life. You know, it, this book is up there as one of the most impactful books I've ever read on me anyway. And it was called Can Christianity Cure Obsessive Compulsive Disorder by a guy named Ian Osborne. He's a doctor, but he's also a Christian. He practices in his faith in the Catholic Church, and so he was trying to reconcile these two things that he, that he knew a lot about and trying to, see, trying to tease out that relationship. 
so I started reading this book just kind of on a whim. And I was like elbowing Johanna every 10 minutes as I'm reading through this book. I plowed through this book in a, a day and a half and I'm just elbowing her. I'm like, this is me. This is exactly what I'm dealing with. This is what's going on all the time in my brain. You need to read this book so you understand what's going on. Holy cow, this is crazy. And I was so excited to finally find somebody that actually felt like they understood what was going on in my mind. Even though I'd never met this guy, it was just in a book. And this guy goes through and he starts talking, again, he's from the Catholic Church, and so he starts talking about all these Catholic saints that he thinks had dealt with obsessive compulsive disorder. And he defines obsessive compulsive disorder. And, uh, and so he defined obsessive compulsive disorder as when someone has an obsession, it's a thought that won't go away. And what I didn't realize was that everyone has bizarre thoughts. Absolutely everybody has goofy things just pop into their mind. But most people have a regulator for those things. Most people have a, uh, a switch that kind of goes, well, that was bizarre. Toss it out and move on. Mine's broken. And so he talked about how a lot of people that have this OCD, which is a form of anxiety, a lot of people that have OCD, they feel overly responsible for absolutely everything. They feel like it is their job to be a good Christian. It is their job to, to lead their family in the right way. And, and a lot of times we've been raised in church where you know, people have been lecturing us and saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And we feel like it's our responsibility to carry all these things and do all this well. And so when something weird pops into our brain, we're sitting there and we're going, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Why am I even thinking these things? I must be a horrible person. I must have sin in my life. I must. And so we just, we just get derailed into this crazy spinning cycle. And when you have OCD, a lot of people think, you know, OCD means all the books on your shelf have to be in alphabetical order. <laughs> all the silverware in your drawer has to go the same direction. And that's not, that's not necessarily true. In fact, if you know anything about me, if you've seen my truck or my workshop or my office, I'm a more on the slob end of the spectrum. Like I'm lucky if the books make it back on the shelf. <laughs> so that's not what it is. What obsessive compulsive disorder is, is you have this obsession and then you find something, some sort of pattern that helps you deal with that thought. For me, it was confessing this with my wife and just burdening her with it. And I just about wore that poor girl out talking to her about these things over and over and over again. And other people, you know, people may develop an excessive hand washing or they have to check the stove or the doorknob 14 times before they can leave the house. And the reason is not because they're just goofy. The reason is because they feel responsible for the safety of the people in the house. They feel responsible for the safety of those around them. They're worried sick that they might get somebody ill with germs that are on their hands, or they're worried sick that the house might burn down. And the only thing that helps them feel better about that is by checking, double checking, triple checking, making sure that things are okay and things are safe. That's the compulsion, the thing that helps them deal with it. And the book walked me through three thought patterns that significantly helped me. And I want to just share those with you. This isn't one of those this isn't one of those messages where I tell the story and then leave you hanging for another 25 minutes and then I'll finish it at the end and you'll see the resolve. Here's the three things that really helped me that the book taught me. And then we're going to relate this back to guilt and shame and all of these things. And why are you hiding? The first thing it taught me is it's not you, Jonathan. It's not me. It's the OCD speaking. Number two was to give that responsibility, that overarching responsibility that I felt to make sure my marriage worked 
to God. And the third thing was to hold off as long as I possibly could from doing the compulsion. Not to criticize myself when I finally gave back in and did it, but to hold off as long as possible to try to cut a new groove in my brain. And so I want to talk to you today. I've shared my story a little bit, but I want to talk to you today about what you're feeling. You may even be watching this from bed right now because you're so depressed and the feelings are so overwhelming that you don't have the strength. You don't have the ability to even get up out of bed and to attack the day. You're just stuck. And that was the most frustrating thing. That was one of the most frustrating things about that period of my life was not only that I just felt bad, but that I didn't know what to do and I didn't feel right and nobody seemed to understand. And that might be you. In fact, odds are, if you're watching this with your family right now, statistics about depression and anxiety are such that probably at least one of you has dealt or is dealing with one of these things. Might be depression, might be anxiety, might be rage, might be fear. I don't know. What, you give your own brand or your own name to it, but something is going on upstairs. Something's going on between the ears that you don't really feel like you have control over. And I want to talk to you today about that. Darren did a great job last week of talking about guilt Guilt, he, he defined it as, I did something bad. You've messed up. You broke the rules somewhere along the line. And you have those feelings of guilt that come along with it. And then shame is when it goes a lot deeper than that, when it becomes part of who we are. And instead of, I just did something bad, now it is, I am bad. I love those definitions that Darren gave us. And here's the facts. The fact is that we have all sinned. We've all done bad. We are all guilty. And that means that our sin has hurt other people. We've not only all done wrong things, but we've also all been hurt by other people. We've all had bad things happen to us. We've all had shameful things happen to us. We've all had hurtful things happen around us. We live in a broken world. What we're going through right now with COVID-19, perfect example. Whose fault is COVID-19? Well, it's not necessarily anybody's fault, but it's happening. It's here. We live in a messed up, broken world. People are suffering and hurting. People are fearful and anxious. A lot of times those bad things, those shameful things start to demonstrate themselves in our lives as depression where we just can't kick the feelings of sadness. It feels like there's a cloud all the time, just an element of blue throughout your entire day, your entire life. They manifest themselves as anxiety. They manifest themselves as rage or anger, just a low-grade simmering anger throughout your whole day. We are dealing with things upstairs because of what's happened around us. And I realized as I was thinking through this message and I was thinking through guilt and shame and then I was comparing it with my story of anxiety and what I had to do to start getting a grip on it. I realized that the first two things that that book walked me through where he said, you know, it's not you, it's the OCD and also give the responsibility to God. That book was retraining me in my identity. We have to understand what the cross means for our identity. 
And again, Darren touched on this last week when he talked about the cross has dealt with our guilt. That guilt is no longer charged to our account because it was charged to Jesus' account. He took that punishment for our sin. He took all of that. But it's also dealt with our shame. And he had some great passages of scripture from Hebrews and Romans talking about how we are no longer considered bad. We are not bad anymore because of what Jesus did on that cross. And so when the book was training me, hey, Jonathan, it's not you, it's the OCD, I had to learn that I am not broken. I am not a pervert. I am not a weirdo. I am not stupid. It's because I live in a broken world and there's this thing called OCD that I just have to deal with. But my identity, because of the cross, is whole. My identity, because of the cross, is made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When God looks at you, he sees a new creation. He sees someone brand new. Someone with nothing wrong. 1 Corinthians 6.10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, do not be deceived. And then he lists a whole bunch of identities. Check out these identities. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the cool part. He says, and such were some of you. Such was I. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Guys, we have to embrace this new identity that Christ has given us through the cross over and over and over and over again in scripture. And I can spend the whole message time just giving you scripture after scripture, showing you what God thinks when he looks at you, showing you that he loves you, showing that he, that he approves of you. I don't care if you are so depressed right now that you can't even think straight. I don't care if you're so anxious, if you've got a lump in your throat, if you've got a pain in your chest, if you've got just nervous energy that you can't figure out. I do not care about those things. Your feelings may not line up with the truth, but the truth is that your name is not depression. Your name is not anxiety. You are whole. You are new in Christ. It's not who you are. It's just the anxiety talking. It's not who you are. It's just the old ugly monster of depression talking. And those things are real and they can make you feel very bad, but they are not true. It is not who you are. You are not defined by those things. So I had to learn it's not just me. It's the OCD talking. I had to learn that when Christ looks at me and therefore when I look at me, I should see a whole person. And then I had to learn, and this may be more specifically for those of you who are dealing with anxiety, but I had to learn 
and I'm still working on learning. <laughs> this is not preaching out of perfection. I had to learn how to give that responsibility back to God. I had to learn that it's not my job to do all these things. I want to just give you some examples. It's not, it is God's job to keep you safe. Check this verse out, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's so applicable, especially as we're going through this COVID-19 crisis. It's God's job to keep you safe. It's God's job to keep you healthy. Don't carry that responsibility yourself. How about this? It's God's job to keep you right, to teach you right from wrong. I had to figure this out. I thought I'd always sinned. I thought I'd always messed up. I thought God was always angry with me. But here's Jeremiah 10, 23 through 24. Jeremiah says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. He's saying, I have no clue what I'm doing. That it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Another one I've heard regularly is, is especially moms sometimes worrying about their kids' safety. But check this out. It's God's job to care for those whom you love. Isaiah 40, verse 10. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's not your responsibility to keep your children safe. It's God's. It's hard to hear these things sometimes, but it's true. Or let's talk with the guys for half a second. It's God's job to provide for you and your family. Matthew 6, 31 through 34. I said these verses to myself so many times trying to understand. Here it is. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's not your job to make sure that everybody's physical needs are always taken care of. It is not your job to make sure that bread is on the table. Yes, work hard. Yes, obey. But give that responsibility to God. And then this last one, I think it just encapsulates all of this so perfectly. And I still struggle to make sure my brain is operating this way. But we have to come like a child. It's not your job to have it all together. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I have four kids and I've seen this. I have learned that when my children are just relaxed, just enjoying the good things that I have provided for them, I don't want my kids worried about where their meal is coming from. I don't want my kids to be worried about their safety. I don't want my kids to be worried about the, the safety of the people around them. It's not their job. It's not their responsibility. And God is saying the same thing to you and to me through this passage. It's not your responsibility to handle all of these things. I've got it. Humble yourself 
and enjoy life like a child. And then that last thing, hold off as long as possible from doing the compulsion. A question I like to ask myself often is if I were not anxious, I know I am right now, I know I'm feeling anxious, I know I'm feeling worried and tense. Maybe you can even use this trick. If you weren't feeling depressed, if you weren't feeling angry, if you weren't feeling these things, what would you be doing right now? And let's go do those things. Let's start cutting a new groove of behavior in our brains. Because as we're dealing with the depression and anxiety that's in our lives, because we live in a broken world, because we've done bad things, because we feel shame, because shameful things have happened to us. Man, let's, let's start living in that new identity that Christ has given to us. Now, I want to take kind of a hard turn here and I want to say a couple other things. I'm a pastor. That means that I spend a lot of time in you know, reading the Bible or studying these things or preparing this kind of content. And this is my area where I spend a lot of time. This is the pond that I swim in. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. You know, I'm not a doctor. And so there's a lot of other facets to this whole thing. And I don't know if you've ever heard that old saying, I'm probably going to mess it up, but I don't know if you've ever heard that old saying where if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. You know that idea where you're walking through your house and you're trying to fix things and the only, the only thing in your hand, the only tool you have available is a hammer. So the only way you try to fix everything is just by beating on it. That happens a lot when it comes to this, when it comes to this topic. A lot of people feel really guilty. <laughs> they feel like they've done something bad because they have to take a pill in order to deal with their depression or they have to take medication in order to deal with their anxiety. And they feel bad. They feel like they're bad Christians. They, feel, they hear a message like this and they say, well, maybe I'm not trusting God enough or maybe I haven't studied scripture enough. And so they're trying to use a hammer to fix another problem. And here's what I think about that whole topic. You know, in, in Genesis, when, when God was creating man, he said, in our image, let's create man. And I think what that means is that there are multiple facets, multiple aspects to being human. We are complicated creatures. We are not just physical beings. We are not just machines. But we're also not just spirits. We're not just spiritual and we're not just emotional either. I feel like all of these things all start to play in together all at the same time in order to make up man. I think that's why Jesus said the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying love God with absolutely every single aspect, absolutely every single facet of what it means to be human. And I think that's what we have to do when we're approaching something like this. I think things like anger and depression and anxiety are indicator lights going off, showing us that, hey, something is wrong, but they don't always tell us where something is wrong. I don't know if something is wrong physically. I don't know if something's wrong spiritually. And I don't know if something's wrong emotionally. You ask a doctor, he's probably going to give you some kind of a physical answer. 
You ask a counselor, he's probably going to give you some kind of an emotional answer. You ask a pastor, the answer is probably going to involve prayer and scripture reading and a lot of these things that we even just talked through today. And so I want you to kind of go with the shotgun approach on this whole thing. Let's attack it on all three fronts. Why should we isolate it to just one? I'm kind of walking through the spiritual side of things because that's what I know best. But you know what? There's a lot of people where there's just simply chemical shortages in their brain and that's why they feel the way they do. I don't ask people with no legs to run marathons, but somehow I'm supposed to expect this person who's short on certain chemicals, serotonin or whatever in their brains to feel happy? No, let's not, let's not play that game. I want to attack it on all three fronts. I tell people all the time, we are like a three-legged stool. You chop off one leg. Let's say you take the physical leg and chop it off. Well, it impacts the emotional and the spiritual leg also. The stool can't stand up. We're useless at that point. You have a, an abusive relationship or somebody that's manipulating you or something going on emotionally. Well, guess what? It's going to have physical ramifications and it's going to have an impact on your spiritual walk. Physically, you're going through a hard time, you're sick, you're not well, well, it's going to drain you emotionally and it's going to impact your spiritual walk. You're not right with God, it's going to impact the other two legs also. So let's, let's join all of these things. Let's take emotional stock, let's take physical stock. I was doing a little research for this message and I found out nutritional psychiatry is becoming a real thing. It's becoming a field of study where, where people are trying to study the impact of what we eat and how that impacts what's going on upstairs. I, uh, I've recently cut back hard on caffeine, not all the way, but significantly limited it. I feel so much better. My anxious days aren't nearly as bad. And so I want to encourage you as you're trying to figure out what your journey looks like with this whole topic, as you're trying to figure out what's your journey with depression, anxiety, fear, anger, as you're trying to figure out how you come out of hiding, as you're trying to figure out how you become the person that Christ has called you to be, the person that Christ says you are, Let's attack it on all three fronts. I want to pray for you real quick. God, I come before you right now and I ask that you would help us understand what the cross has done for our identity. I pray that we would get a chance and get the clarity that we need to walk in who you say we are. I pray that we would not use the words anxiety or depression to define who we are anymore, but that we would understand that when Christ looks at us, he says, you are whole. You are new. Lord, I pray that you, the ultimate doctor, would help us understand how complicated we are, how complex we are, and help us see where we need to work, whether it's in our physical bodies or in our emotional health or our, or our spiritual health, I pray that you would lead us. I echo that prayer from Jeremiah, correct us, O Lord, but in justice and not anger, get us to the right spot.
lead our steps. We bring ourselves to you and lay ourselves at your feet now, Jesus. Thank you for the cross and thank you for what you've done for us. Amen. Amen.